Hello! Hello everybody! <laughs> Welcome back! Welcome back! It's been a while. So today we're going to talk about... It's a very big topic. Very, very big topic that connects so many threads. This is so important, guys. It's the phenomenal binding problem. And yes, I actually think <laughs> we can solve it. And in this video, we're going to solve it, which is very exciting. And, you know, it's never been done before in the history of philosophy. I know it's a tall order, incredibly arrogant thing to say. <laughs> but here I am, very excited to talk about it. And I hope you're interested in listening to it. So, um, well, we're going to start off with uh, the quelly of the day. You know, this is such a, such a difficult topic. We actually need, you know, throw everything at the wall and just see what sticks. Uh, so, you know, we have our friendly, you know, uh, ginger juice. Oh, I, got, I also got some uh, sugar-free Red Bull. I downed a coffee just before this video. Also took a heroic dose <laughs> of L-theanine. Uh, which is, yeah, I mean, one of the active components of green tea is mildly relaxing. Well, it's not a heroic dose. I took half a gram, which is a relatively high dose. I've taken higher. It's fine. Uh, but what else have we, ha do we got in here? Um, well, the quality of the day is Aqua Di Gio, which is a beautiful perfume. Um, Alberto Morillas, uh, one of the uh, greatest perfumists of all time, made it or was one of the contributing perfumists this is quite incredible i mean it's um, obviously a very citrusy very aquatic smell uh, and very musky but the thing that i love really love about it is that um, the phenomenology of it for me it's very cross-modal like it's almost synesthetic and the, the 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 thing that stands out about it is that it feels like it's something like this it's kind of like it's half transparent half opaque and uh I, I can't imagine anybody really hating it i mean it's really kind of like such a safe smell in a way um but uh it's beautifully done well i'm not gonna go too deep into it um the other well importantly uh luca turin <laughs> who wrote perfumes and his wife dania sanchez uh the a to z guide i almost regard it as kind of like a you know the the pical the phenethylamines i have known and loved of smells of perfumes because it's you know so many reviews of so many perfumes they're hilarious for the most part and uh, they review aqua di Gio and um, they say essentially it's a perfume that is only compatible if you think that you know your lifestyle is compatible with white carpet <laughs> uh you know kind of like these very 90s decorations uh like you know interior design with cubes and uh you know um instead of like portraits or anything it's just like a, a plain white squ square type of uh, lifestyle that's very much this perfume and uh yeah i mean it's uh, i associate it a lot with mandarin and uh and cologne cologne is a very important uh, molecule responsible for the aquatic component of so many so many perfumes um and definitely also uh lime well anyway uh very relatedly another incredibly safe uh, incredibly safe perfume uh, component is uh, Ambroxan, 
Uh, when in doubt, add ambroxan. If you're making a perfume, uh, I would recommend you just see what happens if you put a little bit of ambroxan. Uh, I like it so much uh, that I actually, you know, kind of dilute it in, in ethyl alcohol. And, uh, and you know, this is plain ambroxan. It's a very subtle smell, but it's just so beautiful. Um, and uh, it's really one of those molecules that have a very subtle but a very definitive valence effect. And I equate it to some extent, kind of like the hedonic tone component of, you know, drinking, I don't know, like a third of a glass of wine. You know, you're not obviously affected, but um, it's doing something. And I think if you spray Ambroxan <laughs> in an apartment before a party or something like that, people will notice this something strangely clean and soft about the environment and they're not going to be able to place it unless they're a perfumist in which case like why does your apartment smell like ambroxan <laughs> but yeah other than that yeah it's uh i recommend it um it's like just such a subtle but almost always uniformly positive alteration to conscious experience okay so that's the quelly of the day we're gonna actually get into very serious business today um really i mean actually solve the phenomenal binding problem like for reals okay so ah <laughs> been waiting so long to make this video um well number one what would it mean to solve the problem of consciousness to begin with okay so um the hard problem you know from by david chalmers you know is kind of this very interesting observation that it is very difficult to conceive of a way in which form and structure could give rise to qualia and conscious experience. And, you know, as stated, the hard problem is actually conceptually unsolvable. And there's many approaches that people have kind of taken in order to either try to solve it directly or deconstruct it or propose a different framework that is solvable. And an analogy that David Pierce uh, and Mike Johnson, they both like to, to make, uh, of course, I, 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 I repeat it often, is that talking about the hard problem of consciousness as the problem of consciousness is sort of like um, talking about the hard problem of matter. Whereas like, no, actually, there's a lot of subcomponents, right? There's like the problems of forces, of particles, of fields, electromagnetism, strong force. You know, the hard problem of matter is really an improper reification. You really should decompose it into a bunch of sub-problems that eventually gives rise to, you know, metallurgy and chemistry and so many sub-areas. And you really, yeah, there's no one hard problem of matter. So following that analogy, I think it makes a lot of sense to talk about the hard problem of consciousness by reframing it into sub-problems, sub-components that can actually be tackled successfully. So, um, and those are, well, Mike Johnson has a bigger list, the eight sub-problems of consciousness, and I recommend checking it out. I'll have a link in the description, um, but it, it's very technical. And it would take us hours and hours actually to dig through them and provide the solutions that we have at Qualia Research Institute for them. But uh, which is why I'm going to be focusing in on David Pierce's breakdown, which is that any scientific theory of consciousness must be able to solve and explain, A, why does consciousness exist to begin with? Hmm? Number two, 
what are the quilia values and varieties and their interrelationships. So once again, here is the logo of the Quality Research Institute. This, in a sense, exemplifies the quilia variety of phenomenal color. And the way in which they're geometrically related is in this Euclidean layout, such that the geometric distance between the points that corresponds to quilia values is proportional to their subjective difference. Now, this is just for phenomenal color. We don't have equivalent maps for every quilia variety and every quilia value. Eventually, we want to have them. But then even if you have those maps, there is the further question of why those in particular? You know, why is the quilia of color in particular the way it is? And why are they related in that way? Those are perfectly legitimate questions that really deserve an answer. Then we have the binding problem of consciousness, which is what we're going to be focusing on today. Now, of course, they're all interconnected. So actually providing a solution to the phenomenal binding problem will in turn facilitate the other, you know, solving the other problems. And finally, we have the problem of causality. A, how is it possible that natural selection recruited consciousness for information processing purposes or causal effects? And B, how is it possible that we can talk about consciousness? You know, what am I doing right now? I'm trying to talk about, you know, the structure of my subjective experience. How is that possible? In, in some sense, that rules out a certain, at least a wide variety of epiphenomenalisms, which is this claim that consciousness in and of itself doesn't have a causal power. We're going to deep, dig deep into that because epiphenomenalism is really complicated and pretty much every theory of con consciousness has one or another way in which epiphenomenalism shows up and it's very non-trivial to actually solve it. Um, okay, so different theories of consciousness will have different approaches to this problem as well. I'm going to make an analogy, and that is that solving the problem of consciousness is more or less like solving the problem of how to go to the moon and back. Now, a theory like illusionism, which ultimately says that, well, it's an improper reification. You know, there's really no weird substance that is, you know, qualia or anything of the sort. The way in which they solve the problem of, hey, how do we go to the moon and back is by saying, the moon is an optical illusion. It's not actually there. And that sort of explanation would actually work for, for example, a rainbow or the halo around the moon. You know, yes, those are optical phenomena. They're, you know, the, the, the rainbow is not, not actually physically there where you think it is. It is an optical phenomenon. But the moon is there, actually, right? And you can go to the moon and people in ancient times they may not have been convinced of that. You know, they may have thought the moon is infinitely far away or it's a cosmic entity, or indeed, it's just a weird projection. Uh, maybe, you know, the, the gods are kind of painting the sky, but it's not really there. But now we know the moon is actually there and is really freaking far, but you can go there. Now, we're not pursuing the illusionist route. <laughs> I think it's, yeah, basically, um, it's really kind of, there's a sociological component there, which is that, yeah, I mean, it makes sense to have kind of like very broad stroke, broad brush skepticism around consciousness because pretty much every solution that has been proposed fails to actually satisfy all of the constraints that a real theory of consciousness ought to satisfy. So 
you know as a matter of priors that if somebody's proposing a theory of consciousness that is going to satisfy a lot of these constraints you know overwhelmingly likely they actually don't have that theory of consciousness or it doesn't work in one way or another so postulating illusionism you know eliminativism or functionalism ultimately is a way in which you can kind of like take these skeptical stands firmly <laughs> and not make a fool of yourself by actually taking the problem of consciousness seriously yeah we're not doing that here we actually are okay making a fool of ourselves because we actually want to solve the problem and the problem can be solved so um uh, that said a, a very other a very similar kind of like situation that tends to arise is where um we have people that dedicate their entirety of their careers thinking about consciousness only in terms of a subset of these sub problems uh, for example they might exclusively think about causality i would say something like integrated information theory which now is kind of like trying to develop also a theory of qualia yeah i mean for the most part most people thinking about iit are thinking about the causality problem not necessarily the binding problem or even you know why it exists to begin with um it's not it's not really trying to solve all these constraints at once so with the analogy to going to the moon it's something like trying to solve only how to achieve escape velocity without taking into account the fact that there is air drag <laughs> that you have to compensate for or you know maybe if you are taking into account the air drag you may think that it extends all the way to the moon not realizing that actually at some point it becomes a vacuum <laughs> in which case you may not be concerned about you know building spaceships that are actually airtight and that's something that you really need to do as well okay so by me formulating this four sub problems of consciousness or mike's eight sub problems it is in some sense saying hey guys you need to take into account the air drag you need to take into account the you know escape velocity you know the angle of re-entry how you're going to actually land on the moon and get out of the moon again so uh, and if you are not holding in your mind all these constraints simultaneously all of the solutions you come up with are going to be partial now of course you know constraint satisfaction problems can be np hard so what you have to do to a large extent is focus on some sub problems find a partial solution see if it matches with other sub problems and iterate over and over until you find something that yeah kind of as a equilibrium consilience points solves all of them at once and that can take years and years and years again <laughs> very arrogantly i'm going to say yeah, we kind of have a tentative solution, not a full solution, but something that goes much further than what other people have taken into account. I also want to absolutely, you know, say, if you encounter, you know, the solution to the binding problem that I'm offering in this video, anywhere in the literature, please point it out. I have looked and searched and talked to a lot of people in academia and, you know, in AI and neuroscientists and as far as I know, the solution I will provide um, is new and original, especially argued in the way in which I'm going to argue it, which is something that solves all these sub, sub, sub problems. So 
But I could be wrong. You know, there could be an obscure paper, you know, Lewis 1963, you know, <laughs> they found exactly the same solution. It's possible. I don't know. But please let me know, you know, like I would love to know if there is prior literature saying exactly this. I doubt it. <laughs> but yeah, I don't want to. Uh, I don't want to be mistaken about that. So. OK, so those are like the sub problems. Now let's get into the binding problem more specifically. So there is a set of desiderata. Like what would a solution to the binding problem require to do? And I think a, a good breakdown is the following. Like number one, you have to be able to avoid a strong emergence. I don't believe in strong emergence. I don't think that you can, you know, like in the hard problem, you can put form and structure in specific kinds of way. And then like, bam, a completely new ontological entity like qualia appears, you know, that is uh, unphysical. You know, I don't, I don't think that is plausible in any way. Second, you have to sidestep the hard problem, either by reformulation or doing something else. Um, and uh, we'll explain how we do that. Uh, third, you have to avoid epiphenomenalism. Again, how is it possible that we can talk about consciousness? Why was it recruited by natural selection? And why is our consciousness actually properly ordered? Like, why is the way in which I talk about my consciousness actually you know causally co-varying with the content and the structure of my consciousness like all of that has to be taken into account and fourth whatever you know solution to the binding problem you provide should ideally be compatible with physicalism and to remind you physicalism what it says is that the laws of physics are causally complete in a sense there's causal closure you know all of the behavior of what goes on in the universe is accounted for by the laws of physics or, you know, some future iterations of them that actually, I don't know, solve <laughs> the problem of quantum mechanics and relativity uh, put together. But uh, yeah, essentially the future physics standard model gets really close. So let's just say the standard model has to be compatible with the standard model. And uh, if it's not, then yeah, that's a huge red flag. I wouldn't necessarily take seriously a theory of consciousness that introduces completely new laws of physics or, you know, denies the laws of physics or something like that. So no, we are physicalists at, at QRI, but not materialists. <laughs> Materialism is physicalism plus this addendum that says, and by the way, all that exists is matter itself. You know, it's kind of like that is like an insentient brute um, component, you know, primitive of reality is like non-sentient matter. So that would be materialism in some sense is like a stronger claim. Physicalism is only talking about, you know, form and function and behavior, uh, how things look like from the outside and can they be predicted by the laws of physics. But it is silent about the intrinsic nature of what is physical. Okay, so that is the desiderata, you know. So I'm going to be reviewing various possible solutions to the binding problem and then showing that they don't really work <laughs> until we get to our solution which i think uh, does work okay so the desiderata a very important kind of like background observation for solving the binding problem well i guess i should really clarify exactly what i mean by the binding problem so it's okay if you assume 
that the world is made of particles and forces between those particles, how is it possible that a hundred billion neurons, you know, distributed spatially in a brain or, you know, an entire body, if you're kind of like a, an embodied cognition type of person or embodied consciousness type of person, how is it possible that something that is spatially distributed involving so many particles somehow comes together to not only behave as a unit, but actually instantiate something that is unitary, i.e. your moment of experience. Every moment of experience contains multiple pieces of information at once. Now, one way in which some philosophers dismiss the phenomenal binding problem is by saying that our consciousness is actually less unified than it, than it seems. And, you know, that is all well and good. I am very willing to accept that, in fact, a lot of the unity of consciousness is somewhat illusory. Um, and yeah, if you get very advanced in insight meditation, that becomes really obvious that we kind of like draw illusory connections between things. And in some sense, we think there's more information there than it really is. But there's a fallacy there when it comes to extending that observation into saying that, hey, the binding problem is not a problem at all. <laughs> because even if there is any unification whatsoever, like, you know, if you have like an experience that contains two bits of information at once, that already presents the same, you know, it's a very, very deep problem already. I mean, let alone, you know, the complex and rich textures of experience that we're acquainted, you know, with on everyday life or even crazier things like super states of consciousness, like 5-MeO-DMT, where there's so much energy, intensity of consciousness, all of it bound in each moment of experience. So what is going on with that? <laughs> in some sense... Yeah, it doesn't matter how little the unification is, as long as it's non-zero, the binding problem is still a real problem, okay? And I think a lot of the illusionist aesthetic is actually on... I can't help but notice... Some people pointed out that I look a little bit like a magician or something, so... Um, <laughs> an illusionist, but not about consciousness. So, um, yeah, so uh, one way in which you can potentially... Uh, kind of like see clear, you know, why the binding problem is like such a bizarre thing, uh, in, indeed such an existential puzzle, is that <clears throat> where does the observer come from, right? If you have only particles and, you know, they're interrelated with forces, how do they clump together in order to interact as a unit and be a unit with other particles? In fact, if you have an assembly of particles, there's really no principal way of drawing boundaries between them and say, you know, this subsystem and this subsystem are in some sense observing each other. Okay, so you have a very, very, very fundamental bootstrapping problem that if you're talking about, hey, the binding problem is, well, all these neurons are creating these interrelated patterns and high level structures. Yes. But how do the structures observe themselves? They can't because themselves are made of those particles, right? There's no way of bootstrapping larger structures unless you shift to a different kind of ontology. And one way of talking about the binding problem that actually does advance, you know, a possible solution conceptually is by reformulating as the boundary problem. Okay, so this is a shift in ontology standard kind of perception of kind of like classical um, 
information processing is yeah the, the world is made of particles and forces and uh, to a best approx you know to, to a first approximation that's it of course there's quantum mechanics but quantum mechanics really doesn't have like obvious you know kind of macroscopic effects so probably you know quantum mechanics is actually not involved in consciousness so let's go with particles okay uh so in that universe there's particles and there's you know interactions between them well if you start out in a very different ontology where you say like no actually reality is made of fields and for sure you know quantum field theory but not even just quantum field theory you know electromagnetism is a theory of fields and particles but also fields <laughs> so you do have as building blocks of reality fields okay then the question becomes well if everything is a field it's kind of like unified to begin with as de by default then the question becomes how do boundaries arise within those fields and i think actually that is a much more promising way of thinking about this and I, I will point out, you know, that when you're talking about this problem, overwhelmingly nowadays in, in, in the zeitgeist, uh, people will say, uh, yeah, well, I mean, to a first approximation is just particles, where like, like quantum mechanics, like you would have to show kind of like femtosecond level, you know, computation going on in the brain, which is, yeah, quite, quite unlikely. But it's a false dichotomy. You know, it's not classical physics versus quantum computing. You actually have field dynamics, macroscopic field dynamics with electromagnetism, you know, and then they ask like, well, but what tells you possibly, you know, that consciousness has any kind of like field quality and is <laughs> actually so much, there's so much that indicates field behavior in your consciousness. And I'm going to go deeper into that, but um, I mean, if you notice on meditation, for example, how different components of your experience can enter in sync with one another, it feels like there is resonance between fields going on. Quite similarly to how, for example, a string in a piano or let's say a guitar, it has this holistic behavior that it moves all at once. I mean, it's not like, you know, moving faster than light or anything of the sort, but you do have a holistic field behavior. And if you pay attention to your experience, you will notice holistic field behavior everywhere, especially in exotic states of consciousness. Um, when you take a psychedelic and you experience, you know, crazy things like these or, you know, wallpaper symmetry groups and so on. Whenever you experience symmetries, you know, a wallpaper symmetry on the visual field, it will behave as a unit. It actually kind of like starts to form and then it clicks into place. And I would say that behavior is the same kind of holistic field behavior that you have when you pluck a guitar string. That yes, at the very beginning, you have a wave propagating and that looks like, oh, it's not very holistic. But after a little bit, the only frequencies that survive are those that can fit an integer number of times in the string. And at that point, it actually starts to behave like a unit. And in that sense, uh, yeah, that would be an example of what we call holistic field behavior. And yeah, I mean, if you pay attention to consciousness, if you pay attention to psychophysics, you know, so many perceptual effects, like the Kanisa illusions, like those, you know, three Pac-Mans um, that create an illusory triangle. Uh, 
I've got a book right there, you know, Conscious Brain Resonant, sorry, Conscious Mind Resonant Brain by Grossberg. Um, anyway, there's uh, Stephen Lehar has like done a lot of research on these. There is a ton of evidence that should suggests that conscious perception is field-like. In some sense, actually, the particle-like nature of experience is an exception. Like only when you have kind of attentional pinches, uh, things that are kind of like really, I don't know, like something that is like really itching in a part of your body generated these like tiny pinches. Yeah, that's kind of like particle-like. But you're introspecting how it's affecting the rest of your experience. It actually feels much more like waves of energy are bouncing off, uh, off, off those particle-like pinches. But actually, most of your experience is made of this, what feels like waves of energy bouncing around. All of that would be field behavior. And yes, I take very seriously electromagnetic theories of consciousness for that reason. And likewise, I mean, if you look at brainwaves, <laughs> brainwaves are macroscopic oscillations of the electromagnetic field. <laughs> they are, are used routinely, you know, for diagnosing diseases and, you know, biofeedback. Yeah, they're macroscopic. And yes, that would be a holistic field behavior effect. Again, kind of thinking about it in terms of fields is so much more generative and actually I would say so much more correct, so much more, you know, so much closer to the actual phenomenon and the properties of the phenomenon that we are studying, especially so if you actually take seriously exotic states of consciousness where nothing, you know, nothing on a high dose of LSD makes sense except in light of field behavior. Like nothing. <laughs> Pretty much everything that happens in a high dose of LSD is crazy field interactions. Uh, we're going to get back to that. Okay, so I think the reformulation of the binding problem as the boundary problem actually is very generative. And not every solution does that, but I think only solutions that do it have any chance whatsoever of actually solving this problem. So let's go through the list. Um, and the list is, let's start with cellular automata. Okay, so some people, <laughs> it's a, a common belief as far as I can tell. I remember in college, somebody was saying like, oh, don't you believe that a glider uh, like a glider is conscious, like, you know, maybe minimally conscious. Yeah, but okay. So what defines the boundary of a glider? So he here's exactly the problem I was talking about, which is how do you bootstrap an observer? It's like, okay, us as a conscious entity that is looking at the cellular automata, we can say, oh yeah, you know, the glider kind of forms a natural functional unit, but the glider doesn't, seize it, doesn't see itself. You know, uh, to presume that a glider is conscious, you actually requires to postulate this very weird thing, which would be a kind of like extra dimensional reality compiler, some kind of like God, you know, God entity that is like looking at the cellular automata of reality and saying like, oh yeah, this kind of looks like an integrated pattern. Let's give it a stamp of approval and, you know, make, give it a soul or something like that. Because if you don't have that, you know, if you're actually just looking at what is truly going on in the cellular automata, there is no glider. There is just black and white squares 
flickering. That's all. You know, maybe if you consider the entire, you know, the entire uh, uh, grid, the entire lattice as, you know, a unified entity, um, like that could be unified. But otherwise, you're going to be stuck with, you know, having each cell being its own being at best. In which case, yeah, a glider is not like all of a sudden generating a new being. That's an illusion. It's an illusion because we have the capacity for parsing visual data and extracting things that are like more or less functionally unitary. And in that sense, yes, gliders are kind of a thing. They're a thingy. You know, they have some thinginess to them. But no, for sure, they are not natural units in any form whatsoever. It's illusory. Okay. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> maybe to be a little bit dramatic, <laughs> we can cross off. <laughs> okay, I'm not, I'm not trying to be offensive or trying to be mean, but cellular uh, automatas, no, they're not a very plausible solution. Okay, now complexity. Yeah, I mean, some people seriously say, oh, it's just a matter of complexity. When you have enough complexity in a system, all of a sudden you have this kind of like unity. But complexity is ill-defined. In fact, there's like a gazillion different definitions for what complexity might be. And none of them gives you kind of these nice, um, none of them in a principled way uh, can actually solve the bootstrapping problem. Or it gives you kind of like this necessary discontinuity to say, well, here is the boundary around this complex phenomena, unless you define it that way. But then it's kind of like something that you are defining. I mean, if you kind of like set a criteria for this and this and this is the criteria for a minimally complex conscious entity. Again, that's in your mind. That is like you looking at the cellular automata and saying, oh, this glider, it kind of looks like it meets a minimum criteria, but it's not actually doing anything at the ontological level. Okay. And you do require some kind of like modification to the ontological substrate of reality in order to create actual new beings, new moments of experience. Again, this sounds completely impossible to do especially with the criteria laid out which is a very harsh criteria like you know avoid strong emergence gliders being conscious or complexity giving rise to consciousness uh, and unity of experience that would be strong emergence so it fails that criteria believe it or not our solution actually satisfies the avoiding uh, strong emergence and hopefully you, you'll see it in a second but okay complexity is off the list Synchrony, uh, you know, this actually has quite a bit of uh, neuroscientific backing that uh, synchrony in the nervous system is associated with local binding. Here's an important piece of vocabulary. There is global binding, which is any two, you know, quail in your experience. The fact that they belong to the same experience means that they are globally bound. Local binding means that uh, the features of your experience are actually connected in such a way that they generate a coherent percept within your experience. So here, for example, uh, color and shape are locally bound. You see, this color green is not locally bound to my eyes. You know, you're not seeing green eyes. Uh, but uh, it is locally bound to the frame of these glasses. Now, this kind of binding could actually break down there are some people with specific kinds of brain damage that they would not be able to tell which they, they will be able to tell that is green in the scene, but they will not be able to tell 
to what it belongs. And on LSD, for example, you will see kind of like this drifting effect where the green kind of like sometimes belongs to the frame and sometimes belongs to something else. There is kind of this dislodging of uh, local binding. The local binding connections become unstable and kind of uh, you get like exotic binding around it. So, well, that is local binding. And synchrony empirically does seem to be very, very, very tightly related to local binding. In that when you have synchrony between, for example, certain area in your visual cortex that has been identified with, for example, color perception and some other part of the visual cortex that has been identified with shape perception, when they are actually in synchrony, that usually will mean that they are locally binding those features. But, you know, this is an empirical observation, but why would synchrony actually solve the binding problem? I mean, to begin with, it doesn't solve the global binding problem. <laughs> There's a lot of stuff that belong to the same experience that are not in synchrony <laughs> in your brain. So right off the bat, you know, empirically, it doesn't work. But uh, even if you were to say, well, maybe it is kind of like synchrony in a different way, maybe coherence. Uh, there's many kind of like additional definitions and, and uh, con you know, statistical constructs, some of them more plausible than others. Um, coherence is a very important neuroscientific concept, is a generalization of synchrony. Um, why that cannot be the case? Well, because it is not frame invariant. And in that sense, it would actually be incompatible with physicalism. So here's the thing. Whether two neurons are activated at the same time depends on your frame of reference. And actually, like what is at the same time with a given neuron will depend on which neuron you're looking at and its movement. Well, they're not moving very much, but you will require to localize them. And there's no universal plane of simultaneity. We know that from relativity. So actually there is no matter of fact ground truth about what is in synchrony with what else. So I'm sorry, <laughs> synchrony is not a brute fact of reality. <clears throat> so it's not gonna solve the binding problem, um, but it is a very important hint. And actually we will come back to what is synchrony doing? In our solution and synchrony is very relevant but it's not ontologically fundamental and yeah in that sense it's not a solution i'm sorry so synchrony gets <laughs> gets removed from the list okay integrated information oh gosh well integrated information you know julia tononi and all under lab you know they're doing fantastic work i mean the thing that i really admire about integrated information theory is that they are in some sense the first movers for a quilia formalist account of consciousness, meaning that they actually take very seriously the idea that you can translate a physical system into a mathematical object and then in some sense read off what is going on in the conscious experience of that system by looking at the mathematical features of the mathematical object that is isomorphic to it. So IIT, fantastic. It is exploring that. But the devil is in the details. I would say if you actually look at the specifics of the math of IIT, there are strong reasons to be skeptical that that is actually something that will work out. In particular, I do have what I think is a silver bullet critique of IIT having to do with, yeah, basically their postulate number four of how they define 
uh, this thing called the minimal information partition. Uh, this is all unfortunately quite technical. It might take us uh, longer, but just to give you the gist of it, they have this claim that when you're analyzing a system and you're computing the integrated information uh, of each of the partitions of that system, essentially what they call the minimal, the information partitions, they say that you look at all of them and then the largest one has, in the words of Giulio Tononi, the highest claim of existence. And therefore it is the one thing that is conscious in that system. There's a lot of problems with that, but the biggest, most glaring problem is that it makes consciousness epiphenomenal. Actually, right? Because, um, and it's crazy because the whole point of IIT is to reduce consciousness to, in some sense, irreducible causality, uh, integrated causality. Um, but when you say, well, yes, there's all of these integrated subsystems, but I'm only going to say that the largest one is the one that is conscious because it has the highest claim of existence. That is in your mind. That's in your brain. It's, it's like the glider thing. It is not actually doing any further causal effects. It's not like, it's very different like in physics. You see, in physics, what's called the you know extrema principles, um, that you can tell essentially where a photon will travel by looking at what is in some sense the, the, the least action, you know, the shortest path uh, and so on. That, that is not epiphenomenal. So what you do is, if you want to compute that, uh, is like, for example, where an electron will travel, is you assume that the electron, this is the, the path integral formulation by Feynman, you assume that the electron travels through every possible path, absolutely every possible path, and it's interacting with itself in every possible way. And then you add up the amplitudes uh, and the phases of all of them, and it will turn out that almost all of them will cancel out. And only those that have like very similar trajectories essentially have enough amplitude to actually make a dent or a difference. So the minimal path for an electron is not epiphenomenal because every other path is canceling each other out. And that is a causal effect. Whereas in IIT, the minimal information partition is not canceling every other partition. And therefore, it is epiphenomenal. It is like a glider. It is you projecting it into that system. It's not actually doing any computational legwork. <laughs> so it couldn't even be recruited by natural selection as is. Now, I do have hope for, you know, a future version of IIT actually, you know, going somewhere deeper. But for the time being, in its formulation, it's not going to solve the binding problem because it's epiphenomenal. <laughs> yeah, so, okay. Uh, so integrated information is not it. How about causality? Okay, so some people may try to explain the binding problem in terms of irreducible causality, very similar to IIT. Now consider this, when you have, sorry, just random objects here. Uh, <laughs> when you have like, uh, I don't know if I can do this, but um, when you have like one object, this is like a dominoes, imagine, right? Like, Okay, this one falls, and then this one falls. Okay, you can trace back exactly, okay, this one 
is the one that made this one fall, which is the one that made this one fall. Okay, fine. But what if you have both of these in a sense, because this one is very heavy, let's say you have both of them fall at once. In some sense, you have kind of some sense of irreducible, you know, causal effects where A and B need to put pressure on C simultaneously for C to move because it's very heavy, you know. So that could be an approach. You know, you're saying that, oh, you know, consciousness is when you have these assemblies of causal structures such that you need all of them at once in order to affect the change that you observe in the world. So that is promising, but <laughs> we have two problems with that. A, again, lack of frame invariance, that exactly what caused what is something that uh, when you're talking about integrated causality, you have the problem of simultaneity. And it's not clear that you will be able to say, you know, A and B were actually simultaneously putting pressure on C for it to move. That might be possible to solve with some, you know, some tricks, perhaps. But the deeper problem is that now you don't have a boundary in time. So maybe you're solving a bit of a kind of a boundary in space with integrated causality, but I don't think you can solve a boundary in time. How do you draw that boundary? You know, A and B sure are affecting the change in C, but C moving is not a natural kind. There's no sharp discontinuity actually in physics where that, when that is happening. And in that sense, it's not a, a, a true solution. Uh, everything is causing everything else in the universe. Uh, you know, you right now, you are the result of the entire backward light cone all the way from the Big Bang, which involves a huge number of galaxies and black holes colliding and enormous processes. I mean, in some sense, you are deeply connected with that, but are you, you know, irreducibly that entire light cone? No, <laughs> you're a much, much, much smaller part of reality than that. Um, your consciousness doesn't have, in some sense, all of that information explicitly there. Uh, maybe implicitly, but then, yeah, we, we get into some, some issues there. But yeah, anyway, uh, causality has the problem that there are no boundaries in the time direction. So we can rule it out as well. How about spatial proximity? I mean, this, this is a very bad one, but like, I mean, that is a very, very important question. Like, why my left hemisphere and my right hemisphere are simultaneously contributing to one experience, but not my hemisphere and your hemisphere. Even if we're in the same room, why are they not simultaneously contributing to, let's say, the same visual field? And somebody might say, well, spatial proximity, you know, they're just closer. But, you know, you could do brain surgery and just, you know, squish your brain to mine without adding connections. And I don't think that would actually generate just one entity, you know? So I, I think like spatial proximity is totally a red herring. And yeah, I mean, credit where credit is due, a lot of uh, functionalists actually deeply, deeply get this. I mean, people who believe that a Turing machine can be conscious rightfully, you know, understand that spatial distance is not, you know, unnecessary, uh, you know, things can be very far apart and still contribute to the same experience. I, I, I do believe that. Um, uh, very similar to that view is kind of like the number of connections and IIT would say something like that. 
they're like, hey, the left and right hemisphere have a lot of connections, whereas my brain and your brain doesn't. But again, that is not a hard boundary because even if we're just in the same room, we are still causally connected. Less is so, but the difference between my experience and your experience actually seems to have a hard boundary. We are different experiences. And it's not a matter of degree. It's not like we are like kind of blended. <laughs> We're strictly different experiences. So yeah, special proximity and kind of like a coefficient of, you know, in causal interrelationship, they, they're not gonna work uh, as full solutions. Behavioral uh, coherence is like another thing that people talk about. And I also think it doesn't work. That tends to conflate um, essentially it, it conflates uh, uh, behavioral or functional unity with ontological unity. So just because an organism is behaving as if there was a kind of like unitary subject um, driving it, it doesn't mean that there isn't unitary subject driving it. Why? Because it could be a lookup table. You know, in the worst case scenario, rather than a nervous system, you could actually have a lookup table. It could behave as if it was, you know, unified in, in a coherent way without actually being so. Um, so yeah, behavioral coherence is not a solution to the binding problem in the least. Uh, the MAC principle, I mean, this is a very niche theory. It would be by um, uh, Ken Moji, the, the Sony Qualia guy, which uh, I really like, and I, I really love his book on uh, Ikigai, and that he takes these ideas very seriously. And he has a attempted solution to the binding problem, which is, uh, essentially this idea that, you know, a, a photon that goes from one star to another, it may take from an external observer, you know, millions of years, but from the frame of reference of the photon itself, it's instantaneous. So in some sense, like binding across time can be done with things that travel at the speed of light. And in some sense, uh, how different paths of, you know, things that are moving at that speed uh, coalesce in a sense is capable of binding things that are uh, distributed across time and in that sense create you know internally complex unitary states I don't think it works for the same reason that causality or integrated causality doesn't work which is that there is no boundary across time so by the Mac principle as well we would be exactly in the same you know moment in a way uh as uh the the, the big bang um unless you actually count each moment as each interaction but then in physics most interactions are go actually going to be um just particles colliding with each other um so that's not enough information for a, a full conscious experience so and the moment we're talking about like, you know, neuron, like something at the level of neurons, I think the Mac principle, yeah, just kind of like out the window, unfortunately. Um, so yeah, I don't think, but I do really like that as kind of a very creative approach and is very novel as far as I can tell. Okay, the two last ones, uh, one is a uh, very close and then the last one is actually, I think the solution is resonance. Like number nine is resonance and uh, Stephen Lehar talks about that. And again, let's say you, you took LSD and you're seeing your visual field tessellate. There is resonance between the various components of your visual field. And actually, I mean, something that we have pointed out at QRI, I don't believe others have 
you know, figure this out when it comes to explaining meditation effects, psychedelic effects, is that there is a kind of duality between temporal synchrony and spatial symmetry. That when you actually experience something symmetrical, perfectly symmetrical in your visual field, that entails that there is harmonic resonant waves that are actually synchronized. And so like temporal synchronization and spatial symmetry come together. Um, so there is this, yeah, kind of like interesting revival of, hey, resonance and synchrony are very, very related as a possible solution to the binding problem. But what makes resonance especially tempting as a possible solution to the binding problem is that it gives you functional unity for free. So essentially, when you have a system where A is resonant with B, which is resonance with C, you will have some degree of functional transitivity where the entire system will behave as a unit. And in fact, when you have two things that are, that are in resonance across the dimensions of resonance, if you modify one, you will see that modification be reflected in the other, uh, not instantaneously, because you know nothing travels faster than the speed of light, and definitely not you know acoustic vibrations or, <laughs> or mechanical vibrations of resonance. So forget it. This is not an instantaneous thing, but it can be fairly fast. You know, it depends on the frequencies of of oscillations. But if, if the frequency of oscillation is really fast, it essentially functionally works as a glue. So things that are in a state of resonance are functionally glued together. It's actually it actually works as a force. It actually forces if it you know, it was kind of a rigid cube that was connecting these components. And I think that's the case with, uh, with our experience. Actually, the components are experienced that are in a local binding connection are such that if you move one of them, the other moves as well. Uh, so again, when I move this subject, I mean, the fact that you're binding these colors to these particular shapes and to the overall construct of the Megamint's uh, cube, Rubik's cube, uh, they're actually in a state of resonance with each other. I do believe that. I think you can confirm that in the lab in a number of ways. And that form of resonance is actually allowing you to very quickly, you know, in a cross-model fashion, uh, compute where the entirety of the object is located and what is the angle in which you're seeing it. So yeah, resonance actually makes the job of perception a lot easier because the things that are meant to be connected with each other are properly connected. Again, on an altered state of consciousness that can break down and you can have resonance between features of an experience that are not actually bound together in the world or really like there's any sense to do it in, in your mind. So for example, you may experience kind of like resonance between my eyes and maybe an object behind. They may create like a asymmetrical or like a vortex type pattern. If you're on LSD watching this, <laughs> uh, that will behave as a unit and it will have kind of this glue property. But it's in a sense, a maladaptive perception, you know, because there's not actually anything in the physical world that is connecting them at that level, you know? Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think like resonance in, you know, the field of awareness is very obviously there, uh, especially once you dig into, yeah, psychophysics and visual illusions and, what happens on meditation and psychedelics resonance is all over the place. <laughs> it's very, very stunning that that's not like, you know, currently that big of a, 
of a component uh, of uh, of yeah modern neuroscience. So um, the problem though with resonance is that even though it kind of solves the binding problem, it's like okay, how does these components of reality how are they in some sense connected to each other? It doesn't solve the boundary problem. Why? Because just because two things are in a state of resonance doesn't draw a natural boundary around them. You know, you still need kind of this mythical compiler that looks at the system and says, oh yeah, this and this and this and this are in resonance. So therefore, let's kind of consider a unit. But again, that would be kind of the glider operation. It's like something you're hallucinating, you're projecting into the world that is not necessarily there. Um, so what what is actually going on here? Uh, I, I think actually the same, like, as far as I know, this problem comes up with every theorist uh, who proposes, for example, electromagnetic theories of consciousness, for example, the, the semi-field by McFadden, or um, Susan Pocket uh, identifies consciousness with local field potentials. I think the case is really strong that there is something really there. Uh, just to give you the gist of it, it seems that there's a lot of unconscious processes in the brain. There's actually a lot of neural activity that doesn't generate conscious experiences, uh, doesn't paint any qualia on your, on your experience. Uh, and those that do seem to be precisely those that generate local field potentials. And as uh, Stephen Lehar would, would say, you know, most neuron activity is kind of like sandblasting the, the fields uh, of electromagnetism. And... Uh, Actually, your experience is, you know, those local field potentials stitched together into this crazy, you know, pattern of competing clusters of coherence that are in a state of global resonance or, you know, interconnected resonance. Um, but local field potentials don't have an obvious boundary, or at least you need more than just say that, okay, local field potentials solve the binding problem you have still the boundary problem. So how do we actually solve it? Here's the solution, guys. Here it is for all of you. So the solution is topological segmentation. So if you imagine that, yes, well, here is roughly the solution. So first of all, um, we started with a panpsychist account. Actually, you know, what exists is the fields of physics and they are fields of qualia. Okay, <laughs> you're not on board with that. There's not much we can do. I, I can, you know, tell you that search through all possible, you know, at least humanly conceivable theories of, of reality. And, and this is what seems to make the most sense and satisfy as many more of the constraints uh, that we have as possible. So imagine the fields of physics are actually qualia and they start out unified. So in some sense, every the entirety of the fields of physics are started out as a kind of natural unit, uh, a, a super experience in a way, but not a mind. It's not an intelligent experience for the most part. That doesn't arise automatically. You actually need a, a very complex process of natural selection in order to select intelligent patterns that are good at information processing for survival and so on. But the entire field here with an analogy to the balloon, is made of qualia let's say <laughs> this yellow qualia well maybe maybe not uh, a topological segmentation is something that can arise naturally as a direct effect of the laws of physics 
without introducing new, new clauses. <clears throat> if you twist a balloon like this, yeah, at some point it collapses. It forms a hinge point that actually generates a global boundary. You see, and we can define a global boundary as being essentially that in no, if you're in one point in one of these fields, for you to go to another point in the other field, you need to go through the pinch point. So because of that necessity that you have to go through the pinch point, that makes it a global boundary. Alternatively, a local boundary would be, for example, if I do this, you see it, it pinches kind of a, the balloon in this way, meaning that, or, or even like this, you know, kind of like in between, meaning that from any point in this field to any other point, you have the option of going through that pinch point, but it's not necessary. You're not required, you're not forced to go through that. So that would be a local boundary. Um, and what I'm going to suggest is that local binding is actually generated by these local boundaries. And global binding is actually the result of global boundaries. Okay, so let me, let me paint this picture more closely. So <clears throat> there's a wonderful, super classic book about valence. <laughs> no, it's not emotional valence. This is chemical valence, but not the, not the same. I mean, uh, okay, how do molecules uh, get formed? How do you get bonding, you know, molecular bonding? So that, that's been, a, you know, a very big area of research for obviously many years. And, uh, you know, the, you started out with kind of like these very simple rules, what's called, for example, the Lewis rules of, of, of uh, molecular binding. It's like, well, you know, you have the orbitals and you have like uh, the octet rule. And, uh, and that is kind of like the, the rule that makes it happen. But it seems kind of like very, very top down, like, well, wh where do those laws come from, right? Like it's, it's not obvious that that should be the case. Instead, if you start out with the fields of physics, actually, you know, in quantum mechanics, the Schrodinger equation, and assume that, yes, actually the behavior of reality is ruled by the Schrodinger equation and it's actually a bunch of fields, then you can derive Lewis rules as a good approximation to that, but it doesn't always work. And actually there's all sorts of crazy exceptions. For example, pi bonds, um, this, this case, you know, when you have like these weird orbitals that arise when you have, yeah, orbitals of the same polarity right next to each other, or the pi electron of uh, aromatic molecules, very crazy stuff that looks like strong emergence. And it would be strong emergence if you had only an ontology of particles and forces. The pi electron would be a strongly emergent thing. It would arise really kind of out of nothing. Out of, out of, like it would be like a new law that you have to, to invent, the pi electron law. But if you have a fields of physics ontology and the Schrodinger equation, the pi electron arises totally naturally. It's just there. It's like it's a, it's a, a necessary consequence of that ontology. And also a beautiful thing about chemistry is that the actual orbitals that do arise uh, and the resonant modes of a, of a molecule are precisely of the holistic field behavior kind. In other words, they are these fixed points of possible resonant modes of all of the components of the molecule simultaneously. In other words, are the fixed points of the dynamic system. 
And as such, in order to derive what they are, you actually require to take into account the entire object simultaneously. So, uh, it, and this is not something that would arise actually naturally from just you know point particles. It's some, it's an inherently field-like behavior that molecules behave as units. Now, just because they behave as units doesn't make them units, okay? But imagine, and, and this is something that I don't know for sure, you know, but it's for the sake of illustration, that when you have like orbitals like that, you actually have a topological boundary arise. Now, if that is the case, which I'm, I'm not claiming is the case, this is an example, but assuming it is the case, then you have this beautiful correspondence between the creation of a new being, a new segment that has a natural boundary, and something that behaves as a unit. So that is the marriage between an ontological emergence, not strong emergence, because you're not applying new laws out of the blue, but it is an ontological emergence, is the emergence of a new being, a new segment of the universe, and functional unity. So all of a sudden, this new object, this new segment behaves as a unit. Now, uh, with uh, you know quantum orbitals, I would say that's still very much an open question. When it comes to like macroscopic objects like this, it is absolutely the case that you have kind of a holistic behavior emerge. So by me creating this pinch point, and if I make this vibrate very fast, you will see in a sense that because of this pinch point, this entire surface will have its own resonant modes and it will behave as kind of like a, a unit, uh, a subcomponent. Uh, and you actually require that for a lot of things in physics. For example, here, um, this is not strong emergence. This is like soapy water. These bubbles, you know, they are, on some sense, if you want to, to analyze this at the, at the macroscopic level and simulate it, you actually, you know, if you're in graphics or something like that, you require some kind of topological engine that tells you, okay, which face is connected to which face, at what intersection, are there three or four faces intersecting at one single point, do they share the same plane? There's so many like topological considerations, and mathematically speaking, this would be a what what's called a CW complex because you have essentially surfaces of different dimensions. You have like you know two D surfaces. Uh, lines and points and the entire system and its behavior actually really uh, is predicated on, on the topological structure that arises. So when you have like a, a phase of like one of these bubbles and you make it vibrate, you, you, you will have to actually look at that segment and its resonant modes and it will behave somewhat like a unit, not 100% like a unit because it's still connected to the rest of the structure, but it will have its individual harmonic resonant modes. So what I'm claiming is that the brain is such that its resonant modes actually pinch the electromagnetic field and generates these topological pockets. And the reason why that was selected by natural selection, that why, why that can be, in a sense, useful for, for an organism, is because by pinching the electromagnetic field in that way, all of a sudden you have the resonant modes of that pinch 
which is holistic field behavior, something that you can actually use for computation. <laughs> uh, so let's revise. We A, avoid strong emergence because we're just using the laws of physics and you know these topological segmentations are natural. I mean, like they're bubbles, you know? You don't require a new law. However, you do get this ontological new structure, this new segment of the universe. Two, we sidestep the hard problem entirely via panpsychism. Essentially, and th this is obviously a rabbit hole, but for example, David Chalmers has this paper called The Combination Problem for Panpsychists. He explains how, yes, panpsychism overcomes some problems with the, the, the hard problem, but all of a sudden you have that there's no natural boundaries. But <laughs> as a response to that paper, I'm going to say topological boundaries can be a wonderful candidate in this case to actually solve the combination problem for panpsychism. Uh, number three, you avoid epiphenomenalism. Why? Again, because by generating these topological boundaries, you segment the wave function in such a way that you get holistic field behavior. You actually get things behaving as a unit and that can be used for computational and causal, causal, causal purposes. So it's not epiphenomenal. Your consciousness and the boundaries of your consciousness are actually relevant because they define what is going to have a, a, a harmonic resonant modes. So epiphenomenalism, we are sidestepping it, which is wonderful. And finally, compatible with physicalism. Now, I'm not going to say I have the equations <laughs> that show that, you know, the connectome-specific harmonic waves of the brain um, actually generate topological pinches in the electromagnetic field. No, I don't have that yet. But <laughs> I will tell you that topological structures in the electromagnetic field are routine. They are all over the place. Actually, you're not going to find them um, in physics textbooks described that way. But if you look up for cohomology of the electromagnetic field, you will see a vast, vast, vast literature specifically about that, which actually looks into, for example, things like Hopf's uh, uh, bifurcation, where regions of the electromagnetic field generate pockets where the field lines get trapped. And because, you know, electromagnetic fields are inherently three-dimensional, these pockets are non-trivial. I mean, sometimes they're kind of these eddies, but no, they're not eddies in the standard sense, like, you know, eddies of water or something like that. They're topological eddies. And even an antenna wouldn't actually be able to propagate signals very far if it didn't do a topological twist that actually generates these topological eddies. So topological segmentation in the fields of physics are routine. They're all over the place is a sort of thing that, yeah, I mean, advanced physicists like have to take into account for modeling physical behavior. So, well, I'm not saying that I have the equations. I am saying that so far the story is completely compatible with physicalism. And I think we just need to do the legwork, the mathematical legwork to precisely identify what specific aspect of the cohomology of the electromagnetic field gets affected by neural activity. And with that, I mean, that's going to completely close the problem and we will have actually the full solution. And I'm very excited. I think, I think it's possible. I think it's 100% within reach 
definitely within within our lifetimes. Um, okay, so I think I'm just going to uh, finish off with kind of like some interesting implications for these. So um, these may sound trivial, right? It's like, okay, what can you really do with local boundaries? And like, that's not an experience, a full experience. Well, I take very seriously that, you know, the holistic field behavior of our experience uses properties of the electromagnetic field in a sense for causal effects that manifest or project into qualia space. For example, when you feel very tense, I know this sounds maybe ridiculous to some people, but like, no, seriously, when you're in a state of like, in, you know, your kidney hurts or, or you have like back pain or something like that, people say like the field of their awareness feels like knotted or something like that. And that might be something like this, like you kind of like self intersect a little bit and this is tense. So if you were to analyze the, you know, uh, differential geometry properties of the fields, you would say, wow, like actually around here in my back or in the somatosensory part of my cortex that represents my back, you see a lot of divergence and curl, which are these differential geometry properties of the electromagnetic field. And they, they affect each other in a, in a very, very non-trivial way. Again, uh, so maybe this is kind of like back pain, you know, or like lots of, lots of pinches would be kind of like a different type of pain being completely relaxed or kind of like 5-MeO DMT is like you're getting rid of all of your internal boundaries and you have this smooth, very smooth field of awareness. But what else? Well, actually, the ways in which the field could self-intersect and generate these CW complexes is vast. I think there's a huge number of possibilities. Uh, so here's like the first kind of like non-trivial example. You can not yourself. And if you not yourself, from the point of view of the surface of this field, this is very bizarre, right? It's like you have a, the field is self-intersecting here, so it shares a boundary, and also around here. And if you were to unfold it, it would be this weird thing. It's not only that it, you get kind of like this paint, it's actually kind of like a wormhole. And that's another of the crazy things. You see, uh, <laughs> I have kind of like a huge rant in here, but when people try to dismiss the profundity of DMT experiences. They say something like, oh, that's just your overexcited visual cortex. We know all of that, you know, edge detectors and motion detectors and something like that. They're trivializing it, which is like, no, actually what DMT does is it generates a gazillion number of local binding connections and local binding connections across your experiential field which is actually much more like this. You're nodding. You're creating these knots in your experiential field that are like wormholes. When you have local binding connections between components of your experience, it's kind of like there's wormholes between them. Essentially, the attention field lines teleport from one place to the other. So a DMT experience, it's kind of like your visual field becomes something intricate like this, this weird accordion-like complex topological shape it's so much more profound and so much deeper of an alteration than merely overexciting your visual cortex. It's like, no, no, no. <laughs> you're just trivializing. No, no, you're not actually paying attention to the phenomena. You have to look at it. <laughs> look at it. Pay attention. <laughs> uh, okay, another non-trivial thing. Okay, a little bit more non-trivial. You know, you can like maybe do a double twist. And again, you're making these crazy wormholes 
have local binding connections within your own experience. Or uh, maybe even more crazy, you have multiple topologically segmented out surfaces or you know complexes in your experience. What is this? This could be a dissociative identity. You know, you, you did an unfortunate twist somewhere that actually created two topological surfaces within your brain. And all of a sudden, you're actually two, there's two subjects of experience in your brain. And you maybe one of these inflates a lot and the other one deflates. So, you know, one personality is mostly active and the other one is mostly dormant. And they maybe kind of like flip-flop. But yeah, I mean, some of the craziest things uh, that happen in brains is like multiple uh, personalities, uh, dissociative disorders, and it's very bizarre. But I think like topologically segmenting of the electromagnetic fields may actually show. <laughs> and eventually, if we can visualize that in a person's brain, we might be able to say like, oh yeah, here is uh, Jerome. And this other topological cross-section, yeah, that's uh, Alice. <laughs> Ooh, uh, th their valence is not very good. Or the surface that they share is like not particularly good. Okay, let's do a topological boundary surgeries to fix the relationship between the various sub-personalities of the brain. So, and yes, I mean, don't take this, uh, you know, too seriously, but like in the most mystical way possible, something like, Neroda, Samapati, or high-dose 5-MeO-DMT, maybe, I mean, this is very speculative, but maybe it is like, yes, if this is your experience, you know, you're, you're, you're a topological segment of the electromagnetic field, maybe if you relax everything to such a deep extent, everything, all of the fields become parallel, and you actually undo that pinch, and you literally literally reunify yourself with the rest of the cosmos. Um, kind of feels like that. <laughs> That's kind of what a high dose 5-MeO DMT experience feels like. But, you know, it, it also might be completely compatible with just the elimination of internal boundaries. So it feels like you're merging with the rest of the universe, but maybe you're still topologically segmented out. I am agnostic. I think it's more likely the second one, but I don't know. Some of those experiences feel so extreme that, yeah, maybe. <laughs> and uh, that connects finally with, uh, yeah, basically Bernardo Katztrup talking about dissociated identities from the cosmos, where like the cosmos is actually just one being and we are dissociated selves of it. And yeah, maybe it is, we're actually dissociated through a topological pinch. And on psychedelics, you know, you maybe kind of undo some of those pinches. Again, very speculative. Um, but yeah, I mean, the topological approach may actually tell us how that dissociation happens, not only that it happens, as obviously it is the case. And with that, I mean, you made it till the end. Um, congratulations. Anyway, I'll be doing a more you know technical write-up about this, but I just wanted to share. That's the solution to the phenomenal binding problem. Go wild. <laughs> Hopefully this clarified something and and you found it valuable. So, well, thank you so much, Infinite Bliss, and have a wonderful, wonderful time wherever you may be. All right, take care.